0: So very, very quickly, I think by, by June, we will be on to, uh, to the Gospel of John. So what I wanted to do today was to take a, a step back and go back a year because, you know, a year ago, we were um, just starting, just coming into uh, uh, our two-week pause to, to slow the spread um, when we suddenly kicked everybody out of the building and we went online. I was thinking about what it was like uh, when, uh, when we started the book of, of Luke where we were, you know, the room was completely empty um, that it was just Nate and I with lights and cameras, you know, it was, it was bizarre. But um, so I wanted to take a moment and to review where we came from. And I asked a question on, on April 26th uh, for, that, for that message when we jumped into Luke 1. And that question was, when you tell people about Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? Or to phrase it differently, the ultimate question, who do you say Jesus is? Do you talk about the Trinity? Do you talk about how Jesus was fully man or fully God? Do you talk about him that he's the Messiah, that he's the deliverer? And I ask that question because when we started out the book, it it was nice to look and see how Matthew and Mark and Luke and John started off their gospel, how they started off talking about Jesus. If you were to open your Bibles to, uh, to Matthew chapter 1, the way Matthew started off was with the genealogy of Jesus. We're not going to go through the whole thing. I have a ton of material here. If you go over to, uh, to Mark chapter 1, it starts with John the Baptist prepares the way. And he starts with this. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And then he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. He's talking about John the Baptist a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. Then we go to to Luke chapter 1. And it starts off with this. We're going to read. It says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too Decided to write an orderly account for you Most excellent Theophilus So that you may know The certainty of the things you have been taught And then he talks about John the Baptist Verse 17 he says And he will go on before the Lord In the spirit and power of Elijah To turn the hearts Of the parents to their children And the disobedient to the wisdom Of the righteous To make ready a people Prepared for the Lord There it is To make already a people prepared for the Lord. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he talks about John the Baptist. So these three, they're called the Synoptic Gospels. It's our $10 word for the week. But it just it means that it tells the story pretty much in order. If we were to give a synopsis of a movie, if we were to give a summary of it. They're called the Synoptics. That doesn't mean, though, that they are strictly in historical order, they happen A to B. In some kinds, they, they group things, they put some of the things together to, to add emphasis or to, um, to make a point. So our first author, Matthew, he was a Jewish tax collector he recalls his own calling in uh, in Matthew chapter 9 verses 9 through 13 if we were to turn over there Matthew's audience is primarily Jews he starts his genealogy with Abraham in contrast Luke starts his with Adam Matthew he uses Jewish terms like rabbi rabboni and he talks about Jewish customs compared to Luke who actually explains those customs there's a lot of reasons that we know about Jewish customs because of Luke's explanations. There's a lot of things that are put out there that we otherwise we would not know physically how they worked if um, if Luke and sometimes Mark didn't explain them to us. Matthew focuses on prophecy fulfilled, and he uses a ton of Old Old uh, Old Testament references. The outline for Matthew is he starts off with a genealogy, and he goes right into why Joseph, a righteous man of God, adopted Jesus as a son. Then the visit of the Magi, the escape to Egypt, the return to Nazareth, then John the Baptist, then Jesus baptized, then Jesus tested in the wilderness, then Jesus returns and begins healing and teaching. And then it goes right into the Sermon on the Mount, and it goes into a collection of teaching on every single topic. Christian living, the law, marriage, divorce, greed, lust, all of those things right there in the Sermon on the Mount. He's consolidated all of those things, even though they were probably spent over the entire ministry of Jesus. He puts them into one place. Then he goes on to a group of miracles. He talks about the man with leprosy, the centurion servant. He calms the storm. He heals the demon-possessed man, he de- uh, a paralyzed man that was lowered through the roof. And in the middle of those miracles, he puts his own calling. Amazing. He considers his own calling a miracle. And then he goes into the woman who had been bleeding and then the young girl, and then healing the blind and the mute. Mark... He's uh, John Mark. He's in Acts 12, 12, uh, Acts Acts 25, Acts 15, 37, and Acts 39. He's a cousin of Barnabas. We find him in uh, Colossians uh, 4.10. He went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but he left them in Perga and Pamphylia, and that's in Acts 13. There was a falling out because of him leaving between Mark and Paul. And it gives us a model for when we have conflicts between believers, when we disagree because they get reconciled. Even though they have a falling out, they disagree strongly over what Mark did. They were reconciled in Colossians 4.10-11. In, in, uh, through 11. And then Paul goes on to say that Mark was an encouragement to him in Philemon 24. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, Hey, pick up Mark and bring him with you. If there's ever an audience for, if there's ever an example that we can use for reconciliation, for how to, to come back together, they demonstrate it right there. And church tradition says that Mark became Peter's right-hand man. And after Peter's death, they asked Mark to write Peter's memoirs. Mark is the earliest of the, of the synoptic gospels. It was the first one written. There's a lot of talk about if, if they call it the Mark supremacy. Um, there's a lot of reasons why I disagree with the Mark supremacy, but saying that the other gospels were actually written off of Mark. There's a lot of reasons that's probably not true, but some people do, do believe that. But Mark does some things for us. He translates some Aramaic terms, and he explains some of the Jewish customs like Luke does. He uses Roman dating systems, not the Jewish calendar. And Mark uses Latin expressions in comparison to Matthew, who uses Jewish expressions. Mark 1.1 is the mission statement. It says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. You know, we, we gloss over those terms because we've heard them so much. That is an amazing declaration. That is a huge declaration to say, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Those words should not lose their impact on you. If I were to come up and I say, hey, here's Dan, the Messiah, the Son of God. <laughs> right? Yeah. It would go, uh, pardon? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but do you see the impact it has? We're talking about someone that they knew, someone that was, that was with them. This is a real human being. Who is also the Messiah and the Son of God. We cannot minimize that title. And it's right there at the very beginning of Mark. In the outline, in chapters 1 through 8 in Mark, they talk about Jesus as the Christ based on his words and his miracles. And it culminates in chapter 8 when Peter declares Jesus is the Messiah. Then, chapter 9 through 16, talk about Jesus as the Christ based on his death and resurrection. So let's flip over to to Luke. So how do we know who Luke is? We start off with Colossians 4.14. It's where it says, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas, send greetings. Give my uh, greetings to the brothers and sisters at Lyodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Then 2 Timothy 4.11, we talked about this earlier. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Uh, Philemon 24 says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in, G- in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. We think Luke was written about A.D. 60 to 61. And we date that because there's no mention of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. There's no mention of the death of James, Jesus' brother, in A.D. 62. There's no mention of Nero's persecution where Peter and Paul died. Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome. It may have been written in Rome since Luke was with Paul during his imprisonment. and We can read about that in Colossians and Philemon. Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. Mark was written to a Roman audience. Luke was written to one probably Gentile person. It's addressed to Theophilus. There's a theory that Theophilus was the high priest at the time who had hired him, but There's some reasons not to think that. Because if we were to compare it to to Matthew, Luke, like Mark, he avoids using some Aramaic terms. He doesn't say Abba Father. He doesn't say Rabbi or Rabbani. He doesn't say Hosanna. He doesn't say Golgotha. He uses the the Latin term Calvary instead. And again, he also explains Jewish customs. I don't think the high priest would need Luke to explain those customs to him. But the purpose is stated in one four. It says, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke is the author of one quarter of the New Testament between Luke and Acts. Those two books cover nearly 60 years from the birth of John the Baptist to the imprisonment of Paul in Rome in Acts 27. If you were to flip over to to Acts chapter 28, um, 17 through 31, that's where it talks about um, Paul preaches at Rome and he's, he's under guard there. Luke and Acts are unique in that they read like a reporter, traveled throughout the early church, met with and wrote down the accounts of the apostles and witnesses. And that's really what we think he did. But notice that Luke never identifies himself in the gospel or in Acts. We only know that he joined the church and that he was a physician. And he was probably not Jewish. The reason we say this, we go to Colossians chapter 4, There's a list here. It says, My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, send you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is also called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God. But remember before, he said that Luke was with him also. So here he's saying these are the only Jews, but he's saying that Luke was with him also. So that's where we get that idea that Luke was probably not Jewish. Luke emphasizes the accomplished, complete, fulfilled work of salvation. However, like Matthew and Mark, Luke groups some things together to make certain points in the text. There's a fascinating way, if you are looking for a way to study the Gospels, there's there's a couple different things that you could do. You could look at the synoptics and you could study them as a a series of three Passovers. You could start it and look at it as as three Passovers. The other way you could do it is three missionary journeys. Those are things that are recorded in the synoptics, but you could map them out that way for the three different ways. But the question is, and this is what we're, we're talking about, is again, who do you say Jesus is? We've been studying, we've done Matthew, we've done Mark, now we're almost all the way through Luke. The question is, who do you say Jesus is? And what is your religion? What is your true religion? What is it? What do you believe? Because wherever we drive our our tent peg, we have to ask and we have to answer some questions. Is our religion fair and equal? Can anyone, anywhere, regardless of age, sex, race, ability, or history, can they be saved? Or is it exclusive? Are there people that are excluded, that are not allowed into our heaven? Is there accountability, is there justice, even beyond earth? Is there justice for the hurt that has been heaped upon the innocent, even for the wealthy, the powerful? Will they be held accountable? Or, like in some religions, are those people considered higher than us and unaccountable? Is there hope? Is there hope that even though I keep finding new mistakes to make, that I can, make, that I can be saved? Is there hope for light beyond the darkness? Is there hope for mankind? Or is it all gloom and despair? Is there love? Can I be in a healthy, loving relationship with someone, a God who knows me and accepts me and isn't walking away? Well, the answer is Jesus. And things you don't have to take my word for it, right? We've read these three books, and you can read through them over and over and over again. Ask Luke, or you can just ask Jesus yourself. But the question is, who do you say that Jesus is? And again, next week we will be talking about John the Baptist and his role in the Easter story, um, and that's the first that uh, that 40 Days with Jesus series. But if we go over to, to Luke chapter 1, we review, we're looking at Elizabeth and Zechariah, and then Mary and Joseph. And we get something unique there. We get Mary's song and Zechariah's song. Those are not recorded in Matthew or in Mark. We're talking about our faith. We're talking about our religion. These are some good people to look at because they are exceptional. They are really unique and exceptional among their peers. You have to remember that it had been 400 years, 400 years since the last prophet, There had been a complete erosion of the good institutions. The church was self-serving. It was no longer serving God. They had turned away from that. It's one of the things we read about the Sadducees and the Pharisees over and over again. Jesus pleads with them, argues with them constantly every time he sees them. John the Baptist calls them out from the riverbank, begging with them, pleading with them to turn back to God. They use every kind of language to try and reach the church members. To get them to turn back, they had no good governance. Remember that they were under Roman oppression. And they had rampant corruption in the church. And in the face of that, they demonstrate their obedience, their patience, and their faithfulness. They are truly exceptional people. But it gives us a model when we're talking about our faith, when we're talking about our religion. And we're looking at the world around us to say, can I be like them? Can I be faithful? Can I be obedient? Can I be patient in the face of the things that I see going on in the world? And Mary gives us a great model for worship. And remember, we, when we started, we, we actually had kicked that off with a discussion about free will like we had last week where we talked about the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. In Luke chapter 2, Remember, it's, it's Christmas, Charlie Brown. Love that. I love going there and reading the Christmas story. But that is the Christmas story that we all know and that we all read. And then that ends with Simeon and Anna. And they're good examples for us in being good, faithful servants in the church. And we brought out a checklist that we can use if we want to review our checklist. And that is, are we well-equipped? Are we well-trained? Are we in communication? Are we in prayer? And are we in good company? See, when we meet both Simeon and Anna, we meet them at the end of their lives. They have spent their entire lifetime in service of and in search of God. That's amazing to think that through all of the bad things, through all of the falling apart, through all of the things that have happened to them, their entire lives they did not witness good things coming to the church. But they stayed and they still worked and they were still faithful and obedient. And both of them knew the scriptures so well that they were waiting expectantly for Jesus. That's pretty rare. It's pretty rare among us. It's pretty rare in the Bible. Most of the people in the church reject Jesus. You've read through these three books. Most everybody that met him did not acknowledge him as the Messiah. They didn't see him. They didn't know him. But clearly, they give us an example that if they had been more well-trained, if they had been more faithful, that they would have recognized him as the Messiah. So these two give us a good example that they knew their Old Testament. They knew it, and they knew their prophecies, and they knew them inside and out well enough that when Jesus came, they were able to recognize him. And they were in their faith and in their prayer and patient in that. Both of them had been so deep in their prayer life that they had received word from the Holy Spirit about Jesus' arrival. And they're in good company. And we don't know much about their peers, but when we talk about being in good company, did they have access to the scriptures? Yes, they did. One of the the greatest gifts that we have as believers sitting here in this building is each and every one of us has access to this book. It is not excluded from us. And that's fairly new in the history of the church. If we were to rewind, you know, 200, 300, 400 years, it took a lot of radicals. There were people that went to prison. There were people that died to bring us an English translation of the Bible. And now it's been translated into, I think, over a thousand languages. That is revolutionary that we can all sit here and read by ourselves, that we don't need someone to read to us. We have been educated to that. And that we have our own copies of the scriptures in front of us. That puts us in good and unique company and unique history. That has not been the case for most of humankind. They had access to the temple. They were supported in their studies, and they were supported in their service to God. If we were to set a mark to set a bar for a church or for our religion. Those were the things that we should be looking for. Do we have access to the scriptures? Do we have access to places where we can pray and worship? Are we supported when we seek to study the Bible? And are we supported when we want to go on mission, when we want to serve God? Then it brings up a good question. What makes for a meaningful and purposeful life when we look at Simeon and Anna? I would say, and their, their names are recorded for all throughout history, and Jesus said in, in Luke, we just read it, it would be easier for the heaven and earth to pass away than for this book to pass away. Those names are written for all time. What do you think about their lives? Did they live meaningful and purposeful lives? Did they do it? Did they meet the ideal? We were just talking about um, Elon Musk this morning. He's a, he's a big name right now. We were talking about it, all of his programs. We were talking about the satellite internet stuff that he's doing. We are just talking about that this morning. Do you think his name will be recorded in the stars? It's a good question because there's a lot of people that look up to him right now. We talk about Jeff Bezos. We talk about Bill Gates. We talk about Steve Jobs. We talk about these guys that have changed our culture. They've changed our lives. they brought us innovation. Do you think those lives are the ideal type? Is that the ideal for mankind? In comparison to Simeon and Anna? Is that what we're really aiming for is to be like those guys? See, it's not really necessarily a question about purpose, but it is. It says, How are you in relation to Jesus? Or who do you say Jesus is? These people were so steeped in it, and their reward came at the end of their lives, but they give us a good lesson because. When we unmoor from God, like a lot of the people at their time did, they trend towards amorality and evil. I like the, the, you know, the, the um, metaphor. I know I'm a Star Trek fan. Anybody else a Star Trek fan? I bring it up all the time. But one of the things that, as, as a geek who follows these things, you know, in Star Trek, whenever they talk about giving bearings for the ship, it's always in reference to the ship itself because they're out in space. So when they can say come right 5 degrees, they mean come right, you know, based on the the ship's current orientation. In comparison to when you're in the Navy, you're always bearing off of the compass, off of true north. A real ship, when you're out at sea, you always know where north is. So when you say come right 5 degrees, you mean off the compass. When you say come right to 180, you mean you're going to be heading south. See, if we are unmoored, if we are self-orienting instead of orienting off of true north, North can be whatever we say it is. South can be whatever we say it is. And that drifting away, that not having a good heading, it does some things to us. It tends us towards amorality, and it tends us towards evil, and we see that. We see when our culture becomes self-absorbed, when it becomes self-referencing, when we get rid of things like the Ten Commandments, when we strip away a hard, fixed morality. Suddenly, anything can be good and anything can be bad. Good people who are working really hard to help other people can be called evil. And people who have done despicable things can be called good. They can be held up as heroes. And we see that. But how do we get to a place in society where we get so far off track? That's because evil gets trivialized. We get used to it. it. It just it happens all over and over and over again. When I wrote this, the examples that I used were in the news at the time, but they're still in the news. It's just kind of crazy, where human trafficking is ignored, and law enforcement is vilified. Where people are shot and shops looted and burned in the name of justice. Where there are trash on sidewalks and. Governments are providing heroin and opioids to addicts. We have to ask ourselves the question, how did we get so far off track? We compare that to Simeon and Anna, who spent their entire lives and never lost course. It's a good example for us. And we can go to Romans chapter 1 to read about it. But there are three things, three ways that the devil uses to keep people from God. The first thing he does is he says, the Bible is not true. God does not exist, and Jesus is not the Messiah. If we were to flip over to Genesis chapter 1, that's what he does. He says, Yea, hath God said? Uh, I don't think you have it right. And he knows the scriptures. He knows them probably better than you and I do. The second thing, replacement theology. He puts up countless idols to worship. Replacement religions, self-realization, self-actualization, or works-based theology. We have this smorgasbord of religions and spiritualities that you can choose from in our culture and in our time. Any number of distractions. You could be atheology if you want to, so long as you're not following Christ. It's what he really wants, is for you to just dump the whole thing. In comparison to Simeon and Anna, who stuck with it their entire lives. The other tactic he uses is to distract and to delay. Sure, the Bible is true. Sure, Jesus is the Messiah. But you have time. You don't need to decide right now. You can put off faith until another season, when you aren't so busy, when there aren't so many things going on, until suddenly it's too late. We were talking about that last week that the prisons that we put ourselves in, they're pretty darn comfortable. They're air-conditioned. They got big flat-screen TVs. The door's wide open. We could leave at any time. But we choose not to. And we go on, and we uh, continue on with our, our, our cruise through Luke, and we get to the part where, where Jesus stayed at the temple when, instead of heading home with his family. And we can empathize with, with Joseph and Mary. At least I can. I don't know, maybe you guys are way better parents than me, but I cannot tell you how many times that we have been at, at, at the park or, you know, been out with friends and I have that moment of panic where I look up and I can't see the kids. So they were traveling with us as a group to Jerusalem. They enjoyed a nice Passover. They had worship and remembrance and celebration. And Jesus is twelve. He's not a little kid. He's big enough to be on his own with his cousins or with his friends. In a year, he's going to be bar mitzvah. He will be considered a man. And he isn't at dinner that night. Well, he probably just stayed with some friends. He's a good kid. We'll talk with him in the morning that he should have checked in. But then he's not there at breakfast. So Mary and Joseph they go and they talk with family and friends. And the last time they saw him was at the temple. And so then they rush back to Jerusalem. Right? They have a sleepless night on the road as they're trying to figure out where Jesus is. And then they find him at the temple courts. And this leads to one of those moments, one of those vertigo moments. It's one of those places where Jesus you know, knocks us upside the head, where suddenly we're dizzy. I, I, we really don't like this phrase. When Jesus looks at his mom and says, Mom, don't you know I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know that? I'm like, no, that's no way to talk to your mother. But there are times, and the Bible does this fairly regularly, where it's like, oh yeah, he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Didn't you know I had to be at my father's house? See, Jesus is fully man. And we get used to Jesus reacting in surprisingly human ways because we want to relate. But then there are times when he responds in a fully God way. This was God business. I am brother and sister to all not just Joseph and Mary's son. At the cross, we get some of his human moments, when he cries out to God about being forsaken, when he takes the gall and the wine, when he asks John to look after his mom. Fully man and fully God. It makes us think, though, how can we lose Jesus? Mary and Joseph misplaced him for just a day or so. One, we never had him in the first place. We knew of him. We knew about him. We went to his house a few times, hung out. It was cool. But we did not really know him. Two, we know him, but choose to ignore him. We want to do something we shouldn't, so we intentionally ignore him. Right? We can lose contact with the master as believers, lose our communications, get out of range. and A lot of times it's on purpose. I was thinking about Job and Jonah, both of them. Job, he needed to be stripped down, be laid bare to find his faith. Jonah was called to a task, and he intentionally went the exact opposite way. I think about Noah and Lot. Those two guys weigh on my mind a lot, because both of them God called righteous. Both of them he did. And yet, both of them, at the end of their lives, were lost in wine. Or David, who lost himself in lust and then thankfully made his way back. There comes a point, though, where they got done with what they were doing and they looked around and realized what a mess they were in. And it was time to go back. And it asks us a question. When we lose Jesus, when we find ourselves at the end of our rope, we realize what a mess that we're in when we're stuck in a fish for three days. It had to be a pleasant smell, didn't it? Can we head back? Do we go back? And it starts the search for Christ, like Mary and Joseph. They went back looking for Christ. And the search for Jesus is as varied as they come. If we were to sit down and all have a conversation about how we came to Christ, there's every one of us has a unique story. Right? We have wanderers and long haulers and adventurers and free thinkers. We have scientists and philosophers. We have Nations and nationalities, all of us looking for the same thing, looking for Christ. And we could spend hours hearing the life songs of the believers in this room. Some of us were searching, some of us were lost, some of us were buried in darkness. But then, everything changed. The golden light, the treasure, the comforter, the well that never runs dry, a friend, a brother, a savior, came into our lives. Spurgeon says this. He says, Tell me where you lost the company of Christ, and I will tell you the most likely place for you to find him again. Did you lose the company of Christ by forgetting prayer and becoming slack in your devotion? Have you lost Christ in the closet? Then you will find him there. Did you lose Christ through some sin? Then you will find him in no other way but by the giving up of the sin and seeking by the Holy Spirit to mortify the member in which the lust does well. Did you lose Christ by neglecting the scriptures? then you must find Christ in the scriptures. Where you lost him, you will find him. It is a true saying. Look for a thing where you dropped it. It is there. So, look for Christ where you lost him, for he has not gone away. It is hard work to go back for Christ. John Bunyan tells us that the pilgrim found the piece of the road back to the Arbor of Ease, that journey back that he had to travel to find his role under the settlement. The hardest piece he had to go. Twenty miles on the road is easier than one mile back for the lost evidence. So take care then when you find the master to cling more closely to him. But if you have lost him, go back and seek him where you lost him. So the call is for us to seek him thoughtfully, to seek him faithfully, and to seek him continuously. And then they found him. Christ found. What wonderful words. And notice where they found Christ. In his father's house. If we are going to church for a reason other than Christ, take a moment and think about that. If you are lost and if you are looking for Christ, church is a good place to earnestly seek Him. We struggle to do things on our own. We need the support of others when we want to change or when we want to do something new. Sometimes it takes a hard word from a friend or a coworker when we are trying to change. And then sometimes those hard words, they can kill our momentum when we're trying to do a new thing. In the same way, a partner can help motivate us through times, right? When we have weak willpower or when we have a poor attitude, having a workout partner, having somebody who's on the same path as you, they can help. They can help lift us up, especially when we get into trying circumstances that would otherwise discourage us or stop us in our tracks, so the question where do we find them? We're talking about our faith. We're talking about, what do I think about Jesus? Where can I find, I know, it's kind of weird, but where can I find a bunch of Christians? Ah! Huh. Where will you find people on the same road? Where will you be able to lift up your voice in worship? Where will you be able to read and learn the word? Where will you be able to pray and be prayed for? God's house. That's where. And That's not to say that church is the only place to find Christ. God is not confined to a building or to a denomination. But church is a place where you will find the people, the processes, the teachings of God. And there's a lot higher likelihood that you will find him. Higher likelihood you will meet people like yourself, broken sinners. Spurgeon says, Sinner, if you seek Christ, seek him where he is to be found. If you seek happiness and peace and mercy, go after him where he goes. Lie down at the pool of Bethesda. And if God has not yet quickened you, oh, that you might be brought to the pool of Siloam to the gate of divine mercy. For it is here that Jesus Christ loves to resort and work the great wonders of his grace. And Then do not rest in God's silence. Do not be silent. Do not rest. Do not despair and do not resign. Find him. Storm the gates of heaven. Bang on the doors. Plead, scream, and beg. Do not be satisfied with distance and silence in your relationship with Christ. Don't be satisfied with that. He is the roots. We are the vine. The vine that is grafted on. Without the roots, we wither and we die. We are the branch. He is the tree. He is the living water. We are the thirsty. He is the bread of life. We are the hungry. We cannot live without him. We starve or die of thirst without him. We die in darkness without the light of Christ. So seek after him. Just like Mary and Joseph did. Do it. Chapter 3, we'll talk about that next week with John the Baptist. Chapter 4 was Jesus tempted in the wilderness and then baptized in the Jordan. Again, we talk about John the Baptist. But John the Baptist, God, and the Holy Spirit all testify that Jesus is the Messiah. So who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe those guys? Do you believe them? Do you believe what they say? You've heard them. You've read about them. Do you believe them? Chapter 5, Jesus goes fishing for men. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the whole Zebedee Fishing Company are there. They have met Jesus before, and they were converted. This is when they actually leave to go on ministry. If we go back to John chapter 1, Andrew meets John the Baptist and Jesus and goes and tells Peter. But there's something really peculiar here, but not really. We talked about this a little bit last week. God chooses to partner with us in his ministry. It's one of the the most maddening things because we look at ourselves and we go, why would God want to partner with us to further the kingdom? Why? We look at ourselves, we know what we're capable of, we know what we're incapable of. We go, man, such a strange partnership. Why would he choose to further his kingdom this way? Because God really doesn't need us. I mean, he can speak on his home and think on his own. Think about Abraham. Think about Moses and the burning bush. Think about Jesus saying if everyone was silent, the very rocks would cry out. God doesn't need us, but he chooses to partner with us in ministry and furthering the kingdom. God likes the apprenticeship program. He likes to build this, this tradesman-like attitude for us working. He likes us to work side by side with him. And he doesn't mind the questions or when he needs to explain things to us over and over again. And he is glorified when when we partner with him. And part of the reason for that is our weakness. I mean, the Bible says over and over again, in our weakness, he is strong. In all the things that we cannot do, he does. When we talk about the, 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 the food bank, we talk about the provision that comes in, All the things that we cannot expect to even be possible, he does with ease. I love that, like I said, I was listening to um, Steve Harvey, and he was talking about, oh, you know, so God provides you with rent money, but you don't think he has house money for you? (laughs) So God has provided food for you every day of every week, but but you don't think that he can help feed other people? So you don't think that, that God can help get you through school? You don't think God can help you? He just doesn't have the money. He's tapped out. He doesn't have the resources. That's why when I talk about going on mission or wanting to do things in your life, to really lean in, to really grab hold of those promises. Because what happens in this fishing journey? You know, they try and do it on their own. They go out there, they cast the nets. They've been working all night. And these guys are not bad fishermen. They're the professionals. what they do? They left Jesus on the shore, though. And when he goes out with them, Suddenly the boat's full. It's overflowing with fish. But he likes these kind of people. He likes people with rough hands and dirty fingernails. He likes farmer's hands and red necks. He likes early mornings and late nights. He likes attention to detail. Fish the night away. Clean the nets. Make sure they are ready for tonight. And what happens? Nothing. They were skunked. But... Those very traits, those very traits of hard work are what qualified them as disciples. And then they went out for the next three years with the same thing, long days and late nights, sleeping rough, on the road, moving from house to house, endless miles. But notice what was missing. No robes, no degrees, no entourage, no five-star hotels, no Michelin restaurants. I don't even think they took a single selfie. Did the trip even happen? But Kipling and Orwell say this, and they would agree. Men can only be highly civilized, while other men, inevitably less civilized, are there to guard and to feed them. So here it is. Here's the job description. We are looking for fishers of men. And notice I didn't say catchers. It's called fishing and not catching for a reason. Cast out the net of the gospel in the hope a man is caught and brought to salvation. This is for rough people. Gentle folk need not apply. You've got to be fearless. You've got to be strong. Because we're going to be hauling rope, casting nets. We're going to scour and scrub and tar the decks. And if trials and foul language and sneers and insults aren't your thing, this is not for you. If you can't handle the graffiti and the porta potty on the job site, it's probably to find a, time to find a desk job. We sail for deep waters, rough weather, crashing waves, and trials are guaranteed. And we can't be afraid of getting wet. Think about Simeon and Anna. Perseverance is required. People eat every day or they starve. Fair or foul weather, in plenty or in want, in calm or in rough seas, it's time to fish. In every season, regardless of the world around us, in every water, friendly or strange, we cast our nets. We cannot tire out easily. Perseverance and patience are the hallmarks of the fishermen. We have to expect empty nets. That's called fishing, not catching. We'll cast our nets over and over and over again. But the question that is asked is, are you in? Because the net must be cast. The gospel must be proclaimed. And in this strange partnership, God calls us to this work. Because fish don't leap into the boat out of nowhere. They don't fillet themselves and jump into the skillet. You have to fish. If we don't fish, we can't expect a full net. But that work, the hard work that we put in, does not diminish the miracle. It's one of the greatest lessons that we learn about from the food bank. Is that, yes, it's very practical. The checks come in from very specific people. The, the funding comes in. The letters come in. We know exactly where every dime comes from. We know where the truck comes from. We know where all of that stuff is. It does not diminish the crazy thing that 260 families were fed yesterday. That's crazy. We average about, you know, 60, 70 people plus a few more online. 260 families got carts full of food yesterday. Not a little bit. We're talking more than a boatload. It was full, full There was people standing outside having to to package up produce because we couldn't fit it all anywhere. We got a delivery on Saturday. There was boxes and and grapefruit everywhere. We were worried about how we were going to load it all. God's provision is incredible in his purposes. The miracle is not diminished at all because of our partnership. When we stand back and we really look at God's work in this world, it's amazing. And a lot of times we think, well, anyone, anyone would be better at this than me. Anyone would be. Because we do these things. We doubt God's love for us. That he is the provider, that he will fill the nets. We doubt his plan. That we are in the right waters at the right time. And that there are fish to catch. And that we have the right equipment. If you're a fisher person like me, I always blame the equipment. I need a different lure, a different rod or reel. My cast isn't right. There's a million things that I'm doing. That, that's why I'm catching fish. But Thing is that when we do make a catch, then we are tempted to think that it was us, or to think there is a magical formula. That's, that's what I always want. I always want the recipe. Well, if I use the gray fly with a 24-inch leader, and I go right before dusk, I'll catch a fish. Instead of Deo Valente, if God wills, we will eat. See, we read the Old Testament and the miracles, and we externalize, we put them outside of ourselves. see, we say God's glory is only in the spectacular. It's only in these amazing things that we behold. We think about the flood, the parting of the Red Sea, the lighting of the wet wood, the plagues in Egypt. We forget or we diminish that God is glorified in our perseverant work. Think about Joseph storing food for seven years. It was an absolute miracle that they survived the drought. But it was because a human vessel, God's apprentice, did the work. Did God's work. And God isn't joking when he says that he chooses the weak, the humble, the meek, the foolish things of the world. I'm evidence of that. I'm proof positive. Thankfully, God takes plain people who are nothing in and of themselves and works amazing victories. So the question is will you put your foot on the deck of the ship? God, as a rule, prefers to partner with an apprentice to carry out his work. If you go back to your book, there are 66 books in your Bible. Look at them. If you look, most of these are people's names. They're names. We're reading through them right now. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Their names. Look at Job. Look at that. Isaiah, Ezra. Wow. Even their titles, judges and kings. Names. People that apprenticed with God. People that God used to partner with them to further the kingdom. See, for every instance where God said, let there be light, there are three or four when he called up one of his kids and said, let's go fishing. So here it is. God, Jesus says to uh, to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the net. Just like Simeon and Anna and Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth, they obeyed. See, all of us are called to some form of ministry. All of us are called to fish in one way or another. But it's remarkable how hard it is to get people to obey God's command, to get off their lazy boy, and to go fishing. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 1 through 28. But I will tell you that this is one of the ways that our church is exceptional. If you were to look around this place, we are average in almost every way. We are average size, average age, average everything except for two things. One is giving. Our church is made of faithful givers who give from the wellspring of their hearts. Two is participation. Most churches have a 10 to 20% participation rate in things like Bible studies and children's church and volunteering. I look around here, I, I don't know of anybody here who is not involved in something. In a Bible study, in food bank, in children's church, volunteering in something. That's incredible. Look on yourselves and be amazed. You're, you're amazing. And we need to be keep going at it. We need to keep going forward. Because every Christian should be on mission, looking for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. With a tradesman or a workwoman-like attitude. Because if we want to eat, we need to work. If we don't fish, if you don't farm, the table is empty. Go back to our one of us in 2 Timothy 2.15. That's exactly what it says. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Proclaiming the gospel comes in word and in deed. And every lawful trade, everything that we do, can be sanctified by the gospel to the noblest of ends whether we're working down at the grocery store or you're selling snow to people who ski. <laughs> the important thing is that our faith and our deeds are married together. You can go to, to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, if we want to read about faith and deeds. But everyone has areas to their ministry. Prayer. Jesus did nothing without prayer. Jesus fasted at times and spent extensive time in prayer. He addressed human suffering, healing. If we see someone who is need believer or not, we need to help. Jesus healed. He cast out demons. He raised the dead with no expectation of faith or of repentance. It's one of the things that we run into with food bank a lot is we worry about where is it going to? Or what about these people? We have some people that came through the line a couple of different times. Don't worry about it. That's God's problem. Our job is just to feed. Think about the ten lepers. Only one of them became a believer. Or the two demon-possessed men in the graveyard. Only one sat at Jesus' feet and then went home proclaiming the gospel. Teaching. Our ministry should include teaching. Teaching lessons, studying, answering questions, debating. All of these things where we speak the word of God. The thing is that we, we never know. We never know when we help change a flat tire, we give a verse or a kind word, when we speak life to someone, when you take a meal, when you visit someone, you might be the answer to a spoken or an unspoken prayer. See, this is the point right here. It says, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say, so I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came in and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. I know we got like ten more chapters to go over. But the thing is that it's... it's When we go out on mission for Jesus, these are the things. Number one, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say he is? Decide your religion. Before we do anything, decide that. What is your religion? Who do you say he is? What do you believe? Settle that in your hearts. Settle that in your minds. Next thing is obedience and perseverance. That's what we learned. Obedience and perseverance. This is a lifelong thing. It's not a start and stop. It's not a stutter and stammer. We're in for the long haul. Third thing is be committed to the work. We're working like tradesmen. It's the plan. We're planning on being fishermen. Be committed to it. Be willing to do the work. Third thing is when we go out to work, remember to bring Jesus in the boat. There's a lot of times that we go out to the work and we we forget to bring our Jesus with us. We're not going to do much without it. And all of that comes with that work of, of praying and teaching and being in the Word, living our lives in the Scriptures being in this community together, that as we go out of here, that we can help make this world a little bit of a better place. It's really what it's all about. At least to to hold the flame until Christ comes back. To be like Simeon and Anna. To live our lives so that someone else, maybe 400 years from now, will see the return of the Messiah, but we will have held the flame. We will have held the lamp. We will have held our faith until he comes back. Amen? Amen? All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Father, we seek you earnestly. So many things that we would fix. So many fears that we would have unjustified. We worry about our kids. We worry about them getting a good education and being safe and happy and healthy and having you, having purpose and meaning in their lives. Father, we think about our friends and our family who are suffering. They've got physical ailments. They're physically hurting. They're ill. We've got friends who have surgeries and they're recovering from surgeries. And Father, we would see them healed. We would see your touch. That their physical bodies would be would be better. We have people that are suffering from loss, that have lost loved ones, that are mourning, that are struggling. Father, we would see their burden ease. We would see them comforted. We would see them be right so close to you that they could feel the heat of your shoulder. Father, we think about people who are lost, people in our own valley who don't know you don't see you, don't have your light in their lives. We would have them hear your voice. We would have them hear your words. We would have them see you. And Father, we are thankful that you partner with us, but we seek your resources. We seek your provision. We seek your discipline that we would not be stuck in this building, that we would be out there doing your work on your lake in the place where you call us to be to reach the people that you would have us reach. Father, we lift up our lives to you that this week that we would be a little bit more like these folks that we read about in your book, that we would draw a little bit closer to you, that we would be renewed in our search for you. We ask all of that in the loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So remember, I think there's still grapefruit next door. Yes, please. Yes, you can have a drive-by fruiting later if you want.